Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. I have a word that is not one of my favorite words that I'm going to share with you this morning. And it's gatekeepers. Gatekeepers. Those people whose job it is to regulate traffic, to maintain quality control. Gatekeepers are those individuals who ensure, only the only, ensure that the things, only the things that are up to code, only the right people go through, get in. Through their decisions, they assess what's up to standard and what is not, who is qualified to enter and who is not. And as we continue our new sermon series on knowing who we follow, how Jesus describes himself, and as we turn to the Gospel of John chapter 10, and maybe you found that passage already, many people who read this passage, the first 10 verses, many within the boundary of the church hear Jesus through how he describes himself as being a gatekeeper, as the security guard who stands watch before anyone trying to gain access to eternal life, ensuring only the right people get inside, the people in the know. Heaven in this framework, by the way, is presented as the ultimate gated community. Being in the presence of God as being not an easy place to get into. And the fact that this is true, that this is imprinted upon us in many corners of the church, is, is because this image has become so predominant over the centuries and still today, it's evident both inside and outside the church through the typical jokes and anecdotes that we have about the afterlife. Where in those jokes and anecdotes, Jesus has delegated the gatekeeper role to St. Peter, Right? And St. Peter sits at the gate of heaven checking credentials. You don't get past St. Peter unless you're on the short list, unless Jesus has put in a good word for you. But is this how we should view Jesus? As the gatekeeper, as the security guard who monitors the pearly gates, regulating traffic, checking references, and ensuring only the right people experience everlasting life. Is this how Jesus wants us to see him? Is this here what Jesus is trying to convey about who he is? Or, as we read this passage from John chapter 10, could we be missing something? Something important about what Jesus is trying to say. So with those Bibles open, let's hear from the Gospel of John chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Scripture is also going to be on the screen. Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice." They will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So at this point, I'd like to invite my conversation partner up. You're probably not going to be surprised to learn it's Pastor Drew. So can we welcome Pastor Drew to come up and talk with me? Again, we, we've been talking and meet, we met during this week, and this whole reflection on this passage is based upon three questions, kind of the how, what, what helps you understand this better in light of that conversation, the, the so what question, what connections are you making, and then the now what, how do we apply and exercise the insight? We'll go through those. We, we met together and talked about the first question, but before we even get into that, I thought it would be helpful, as Pastor Drew and I were talking, um, it's really, this is one of those metaphors that Jesus gives that it's important to understand the context and understand specifically what he's describing. And so, Pastor Drew, do you mind kind of setting the stage for what Jesus is envisioning here when he talks about this? Sure, yeah. And this was uh, confusing to me when I was reading it because I felt like there's some mixed metaphors. He's talking about himself as a shepherd first, and then he talks about himself as a gate or a door. And, and I'm like, what, what is Jesus talking about here? But um, Pastor Chris um, and I were talking about it and doing a little research together and also kind of just remembering the, the first century context that Jesus is speaking to. Um, he's speaking to uh, hard workers, you know, people who were farmers and shepherds and day laborers and stuff. And so he's using things that are uh, familiar to them. And in that time, uh, sheep enclosures probably weren't fenced areas made of wood. Um, they probably were the bottom area of the home of a shepherd, which might have been like a hollowed out kind of almost like crawl space. Maybe some of us have crawl spaces under our homes. That could have been a hollowed out area. Or a lot of houses were built up against a rock formation and there's a cave back there. You know, similar to some of us remember the story of Mary and Joseph when Jesus was born, that they, they probably stayed in the animal enclosure, which could have been a, a hollowed out part of a cave area. Or, or oh, something like that. That's not what I was, okay, sure, yep. <laughs> that could also have been what it looked like. <laughs> this is why Pastor Chris and I should have talked since Monday and now. It's the same idea. Yeah, the same idea. A rock enclosure, a cave or a uh, really well-built rock wall, retaining wall, if you were. Um, the point being that we don't see a gate there. We see a gateway. We see a doorway. But Jesus refers to himself as the gate. And in that day, what the gate was to keep the sheep in and keep intruders out was the shepherd himself. And so at night, the shepherd would sleep in the gateway, in the doorway so that no sheep would get out under his watch and no other things would get in under his watch. And so that's the metaphor that we're looking at here is that the gate being a person, okay? The, the doorway being a person to provide the protection and the oversight as well as the leadership. So, kind of, Sorry, I threw you please, the curve there. That's but, okay. Um, part of understanding that the, the, the shepherd was literally the, the living gate yes. in front of it is why Jesus talks about those who are not the shepherd try to go in another way. You wouldn't go through the gate because you're going to run headlong into the shepherd. So you're going to try to climb over the wall. You're going to try to bypass the gate. So that's also kind of the... Because so Jesus is using, the, the, he's using these real-life examples as a metaphor to say, hey, right. we all know this. If you go, if you stand at the doorway, that means you must be in charge of the sheep. If you go in another way, you must not be in charge of the sheep. And so if you see anyone climbing over a wall, they must be up to no good. 
And so Jesus is kind of presenting this idea. We go, okay, okay, uh uh-huh, yep, we get it. And his first listeners would have been like, yeah, we get that. And then in the back of their mind, as they're listening to him continue to teach, they're going, so where do I fit into this image? And that's what we ask ourselves as well. Who is he saying that I am? Where do I fit into this image? And that leads into your, the question that when I said, what's your, kind of the question in the midst of the mixed metaphors that, that would help you better understand this passage? And your question was, who are the thieves and robbers that Jesus is referring to? Um, and I think the way of answering that question, what we talked about is, you got to be, this is one of those examples where you can't listen to what Jesus is saying in isolation. You ha- context is so important when you're looking and reading scripture. Um, and you know, because a common thing that often gets said is the thieves and the robbers who come to steal, kill, and destroy are the devil. And that's, that interpretation does not work at all given the context of what's happening here. Because if you're looking at this passage in context, Jesus is directly addressing the Pharisees. He specifically says to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, I'm talking to you. And even more than this, if you notice, we looked at this passage last week in John chapter 9. This conversation comes right off of what just happened in John chapter 9. There's no break in the action. And we'll talk more about what happened in John chapter 9 in a second. But the point is that this is the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to. These are the thieves and the robbers. And that's a pretty harsh critique. And so we want to unpack that a little bit. A little bit of How are the religious leaders thieves and robbers? How are they trying to come in another way? What does it mean that they're trying to steal, kill, and destroy? Well, and stepping back on that, something important to recognize is, Drew and I talked about, is shepherding is a predominant biblical metaphor for leadership. It comes up again and again as one of these metaphors for leadership. So Jesus is tapping into one of the more common, not just the agricultural, though it's part of his culture, but it's the metaphor that's commonly used to talk about leadership, spiritual leadership. In fact, one of the, the, the passages of Scripture probably most everybody knows, Psalm 23, is an epitome of that, of, and it presents God as the ultimate shepherd, Right? And, there, and then after that image of God as the ultimate shepherd, elsewhere in Scripture, those who follow God are called to lead others to be the kind of shepherd that God is. A quick reference in Numbers 27, you remember when Moses' time is coming to an end, he prays for the people that he's been shepherding to not be like a sheep without a shepherd. He's praying for a successor who will continue to lead the people out of slavery from the the time they've had in Egypt and lead them into, bring them into the promised land. And by the way, you probably remember Moses' successor when he prays this prayer is revealed to be Joshua. And again, is it a coincidence that in Greek, Joshua translates to Jesus, who, who comes much, much later. But the primary passage, I think, when we have this idea of shepherding that we ought to look at, that Drew and I were talked a lot about, is Ezekiel chapter 34. Because in Ezekiel chapter 34, through the prophet Ezekiel, God has this harsh critique, and he talks about the shepherds of Israel being bad shepherds. And he's referring to, in that critique, the religious leaders of Israel's day. And the accusation in Ezekiel 34 is that these shepherds, who are supposed to be caring for God's people, are utterly failing to look after the flock. They're ruling over the sheep brutally and harshly. They're fleecing and abusing the sheep for their own profit. And God is so offended through Ezekiel because he asserts they are his sheep. They're his flock. And God promises in that rebuke, he promises, I'm going to personally rescue. I'm going to properly tend my flock by means of a good shepherd in the line of David. So if we, if we take all this as background, now how do we understand what Jesus is saying in, in John 10? Well, now we go back to John 9. Keep in mind what I just shared with you about Ezekiel 34, and keep in mind what just happened in John chapter 9. The religious leaders, if you weren't with us last week, the supposed leaders of Israel, who are supposed to care for, protect, and nourish the people— have this man who was blind from birth, who is healed and gains his sight, and rather than celebrate that, they interrogate him, they rebuke him, 
And they ultimately expel him. That's the, the really breaking point. They expel him from the synagogue. They expel this healed blind man from the community of faith. And all of this happens because they refuse to believe Jesus and his work come from God. What do we see in what just happened with the Pharisees? Jesus is basically commenting on. They're more concerned about guarding their power and their authority than they are about the well-being of the people. They're acting like their ancestors, the bad shepherds of old. They're taking advantage of God's flock instead of guiding, nurturing, and guarding them. They're being self-protective even to the point of belittling and expelling sheep, a blind man who was healed. And by the way, there's this moment in, in John chapter 10, do you remember it, where Jesus talks and then has to talk again because it says the religious leaders did not understand what Jesus was saying. Well, if you read John 10, Jesus also hints to them why they're not understanding what he's saying. Why don't they understand? It's further evidence they're not his sheep. Because Jesus' sheep recognize and follow his voice. The religious leaders refuse to do this so they don't understand him. They reject him instead. So, to bring this all together, contrast the actions of the religious leadership with that of Jesus. This once blind but now healed man is a lost sheep. He's expelled from the synagogue. He was lost, you might even argue, before. He was isolated because of his blindness. Remember in John chapter 9, the disciples are like, who sinned, he or his parents? Jesus comes and finds this lost sheep and brings him back to the security of the pen, the security of the fold. He, gives, he gives, removes his isolation due to blindness and his expulsion, and then he provides for him by giving him not only physical sight, but spiritual insight, to be the ability to know who Jesus is, and he gives him a sense of belonging and community. This man then says, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, worships him. Whereas the Pharisees have done the exact opposite, the religious leadership. So what I, wanted, what I left this with Drew, and I'm going to be curious where he's going to go next, is where I, my takeaway from that is the self, this self-description by Jesus, I am the gate, has been badly interpreted in ways that harm people. I alluded to that in the opening of this sermon. It stresses exclusivity. This sermon gets turned into being all about who's in and who's out when it comes to God's flock. It's been read as a biblical proof in a lot of teaching and messages as Jesus won't love or save people who don't look, act, think, believe, pray, love, or worship the same ways I do. But I hope from what the little bit that we've just shared, even the, sharing the image and talking about it, the metaphor of the gate is not one of exclusion. It's not a license for us to think of ourselves when Jesus said, who are we in this story? It's not a license for us to think of ourselves as Jesus' true sheep and the out, others as outsiders. If we take the passage and use it like that, the problem is we become like the religious leaders, the Pharisees who harassed and expelled the blind man from the people of God. When Jesus says, I am the gate, what is the purpose of a gate? A gate is an opening, as Drew unpacked, in a, a fence or a wall. A gate, as Drew said, is a means of access, right? A way to get in. Keeping the bad guys out, wolves, thieves, robbers, is not what a gate is for. That's the job of the wall. The gatekeepers in this passage are the religious leaders. Jesus, Drew said this, is the gateway. Jesus doesn't say, I am the wall, I am the barrier, I am the enclosure, I am the dividing line. Jesus doesn't say, I'm the one that separates, isolates, and segregates. Jesus says, I am the gateway. I am the door. I am the opening. I am the passageway. I'm the place where freedom begins. Listen to what Jesus says here. Whoever enters by me will be saved, protection, and will come in and go out and find pasture, life to the full, provision. Jesus is not the gatekeeper. Jesus is the gateway. And it's not just about security. It's also about provision. So, Drew, we chewed a lot on that. Where did you come, come around to on the, we're now at the second question of what connections or insights 
did you make from us talking about that? Yeah, I think that when Jesus is talking about keeping out the thieves or the, the wolves or things like that, Jesus doesn't talk about whether or not the gate will keep out any sheep. The, the sheep are meant to come in and out through the gate. Well, and you're right, because even later in the passage, which we'll get to when we get to the good shepherd part, he talks about this idea of there are she- other sheep yeah. that will hear my voice and will come that are not even of this flock. And so when we interpret this uh, passage as thinking about, oh, okay, so Jesus is standing there, and maybe this is how I've thought about it myself, that Jesus is standing there with arms crossed, and, and we come up to the gate and say, please, Jesus, let me in. And he goes, nah, I don't know. Let me look over your resume here, or let me, hey, stand, stand on that line and recite for me something, you know? That, that's a gatekeeper image, Yeah. right? Um, but Jesus never talks about having a test for whether or not sheep can come in and out. Sheep are meant to come in and out. Sheep, sheep are known by their shepherd, and their shepherd is known by the sheep, and the sheep are welcomed in to protection, and the sheep are, are uh, ushered out into the abundant life of, of, of roaming free and having food and coming together in communities like that. And so the idea, and, and you're talking about a lot, where if the religious leaders are becoming gatekeepers, anytime someone sets themselves up as a gatekeeper, they're doing a job that Jesus didn't say we're supposed to do. Well, and if I may, real quick, I think what's really interesting about that is we, have, we, te- we tend to do this a lot with the religious leadership in the gospel, is sort of make them the, the stereotypical villain, the bad guys, <laughs> you know, like wringing their hands together. And the religious leaders are not, that's not, for the majority of them, that's not where they're coming from. But my point being is the religious leaders are given access to, they can come, they're sheep as well. They're not labeled, oh, you're no good, you're thieves, you're wolves, you're robbers, just no, outright. They become thieves, robbers, what have you, when they refuse to go through the gate, when they try to jump over the wall. See what I'm saying? So even, that sure. idea, even there's a sense of exclusivity where we're like, oh, well, if you're a gatekeeper, then you're a thief and a robber and you can't be part of the flock. No, everyone can be a part of the flock, but it's when we choose not to be a part of the flock and presume a role. And isn't that what it goes back to in the beginning? When we presume to be stand in the place of God, when we presume to be the gatekeeper, that all of a sudden ends up finding us on the outside looking in. One image that pops on my mind, and then I have a, another connection that I'm making in my head, but uh, I, before Megan and I got married, um, I, I lived with um, a family uh, that, that used to be part of our community here, the, the Williams family, and um, there was one time where I, I forgot my key, and I couldn't get into the front door, and no one else was home, and I knew that there was a way to get in if you go um, around the side gate and then climb up onto this landing at the kitchen, and you can kind of sneak in through this thing, and the entire time, I, you know, I'd only been living there for a couple weeks, and I just knew if any neighbor looks over their, their fence and sees this scraggly-looking bearded guy sneaking in through a back kitchen window, it's not going to look good. Now, I wasn't a thief or a robber, but I wasn't acting like I wasn't a thief or a robber. I was kind of doing the thing that thieves and robbers do, which is not go in the front door, right? And so, again, that's this idea of, like, you know, Jesus is saying, hey, when you start acting like a thief and a robber, like, people are going to start assuming that maybe, maybe you're not supposed to be in there if you're going in the wrong way. But so that, that's that idea of, of, of Jesus not being a gatekeeper. But one of the thoughts that we had talked about on Monday and that I've just been— re- reflecting on more and more, is I've often viewed this life of following Jesus, the the idea of salvation, 
as, as a destination. And I don't know how many of, of the rest of us have, have thought that too, right? Like we think of heaven as a destination that we're, we're going towards. We're not there yet. One day we'll get there if we, and then we, we fill in all the blanks of if we, you know, lean on the power of Jesus, act a certain way, live a good life. Whatever we filled in those things, we think that it's a destination and there's prerequisites to getting there. Well, and even the most, I mean, the very most basic generic evangelistic line is, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you're going? Yes. And so we've set up this image, and, and, and again, that's how I actually approached this. I was like, oh yeah, because I want to get into that sheep pen. I, I want to be admitted access to the safety of the sheep enclosure. Please, gate, let me in, right? But Jesus doesn't talk about, oh, the goal is to get all the sheep in here. Because sheep aren't meant to stay in a pen. Sheep sleep in a pen. The rest of the time, they're out and about, living their life in the world, nibbling on grass, uh, enjoying the sunshine, growing fleece so that they can provide what, like, Sheep have a full, abundant life out of the pen. And so then we started talking about a little bit of maybe salvation not being a destination, but salvation being this way of life under the shepherd. Do you think that we have a tendency, and maybe I'm asking a leading question. That's okay. I think we have a tendency to operate the same way, not even just in terms of what, do you know where you're going to go when you die, but forgive me, for many of us, we think this is what salvation is. And what do I mean by this is right now we're in the sheep pen. Right now we came to church. We got it. We're inside. This is cozy and warm, and we know everybody loves Jesus, and we say all the right things. And everyone came in the same door. Everyone came in the same door. We got counted on the way in. But when we go out that door, <laughs> it's, that's true. <laughs> when we go through that door, we, all, we, 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 you know, we articulate this idea we are the church. Yeah. But again, most people, and most, how do most people talk? I'm going to church. Um, this, is the ch- this is my church. This is the church. And very often do they rarely say it when they're out there. They say it when they're here. They point to a destination. They point to a location. Yeah. Yeah, and I think when, when I, am, I am constantly trying to unlearn the way that I learned how to follow Jesus, and, and I don't mean to say that my, my parents taught me wrong or that my pastors have taught me wrong growing up. I think I've always internalized a way of following Jesus meaning that Jesus has set up this, this guide for how to live. He is the model that we're supposed to pattern our lives after. And the way that I've approached that is going, okay, so this is the way I'm supposed to live. Great, I'll take that plan and I'm going to try and live it now. And I go off doing my best to live up to that guide, to live up to that ideal, so that then when I get to the destination, I can say, see, Jesus, I've, I've followed all the guidelines. Can you let me in now? I've internalized this idea that I'm supposed to be earning this way of life rather than thinking of it as saying, I'm coming under the guidance and the protection and the the rulership of this shepherd. Hey, Jesus, teach me how to follow you with you, not apart from you, coming into the sheep pen, going out into my life, being protected and being provided for, it's not this, I mean, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, you know, the ones who go alone are the lone wolves, but we're not supposed to be wolves. We're supposed to be sheep that 
follow their shepherd and learn from their shepherd. And um, we have a, a mutual friend, uh, Bob Ronglian, who's in the Holy Land right now. And uh, some people went with you to the Holy Land not too long ago. And I remember when Megan and I were able to go a couple years ago, um, we, we were talking about sheep and shepherds. And our guide was talking about the fact that sheep actually know their shepherd's voice. And uh, he demonstrated it with an example of when you can have like two different herds of sheep come together crossing the same road. Um, and you'll have one of the shepherds have a certain call, like, you know, because they've all come to the same area, and there's 5,000 sheep, you know, in the same pasture. And all of a sudden, when one guy goes, half of them start meandering towards him, and the other one goes, yell up, yell up, and they'll start going towards him because they know, oh, that, that's my guy over there. And all of a sudden, this huge conglomeration, the sheep actually know their shepherd's voice. And then they move on to where, okay, we got to go to where the next spot is or go to the, where the water is. And it's just the amazing thing of being like, okay, um, being a sheep doesn't mean you learn, like, the ideals of following the right shepherd on your own and then you try and do it. Your, like, it means you literally follow the shepherd. And what? so for me, it's like this, this, I'm trying to unlearn this salvation as a destination, but salvation as a way of life, actually listening to my shepherd's voice every day. So that as I approach him as, as this gateway, not a gate, but he's the one that ushers us in and out, well, that implies I need to be with him. Yeah, I, I really like how we're unpacking, you're unpacking this idea that it's not about a destination. Destination has a sense of we've already arrived, yeah. or a destination has the sense of we've got to keep going to get there. Yeah. And it's not about the destination, it's, it's about the relationship, it's about the, the, the person. And, you know, when we talk about Jesus, I really liked how you talked about this idea of we kind of, how do we, how do we understand this idea of following Christ in this way? How do we change this perception? And I would go back to, again, one of the, our favorite passages of Scripture that most people know, which is Psalm 23. Read Psalm 23 through the light of what, how Jesus presents himself. And even the gate, what's great about the image of the gate, the living gate, a gate that isn't like we build that opens and closes, but the gate, the shepherd begins as a gate that guards the, uh, the sheep at night, but then the gate continues to move. So you've got to keep going through the gateway in order to go where the shepherd wants you to go. But when you read Psalm 23, Jesus is our security, but it's not a static security. It's not about staying in place. Even though I walk through the darkest valley... The shepherd prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemy. Everything about this is not static, like get inside the pen. It's about continuing to go forward, knowing that you're going to be protected by the shepherd. Paul puts it this way, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of our shepherd, who is also the gateway to life. Jesus is the gateway not only to our security, but also to our freedom. But that freedom is experienced, as you articulated, on the move, right? Back to Psalm 23, the life that Jesus offers us is not less it's more. It's the life of the richest and greenest pastures. It's the quiet and refreshing waters. It's fullness and abundance we cannot even imagine. So the psalmist writes, my cup overflows. It's measured not in what is here today and gone tomorrow, but it's measured, this full life, this abundant life, in what lasts and endures. What does the psalmist say? Goodness and mercy that follows us all the days of our life. It's the assurance of a permanent, enduring home as the psalmist writes, we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And he's not just simply speaking of a destination. He's speaking of, and again, that's the, maybe the way to think of the sheep pen, is the sheep pen is the place where we abide. The sheep pen is the place where we rest. But that abiding and resting is not for us to just to be, to stay there, but it's where we come home to in order to continue to go out into the places that Jesus wants mm -hmm. to take us. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think 
it, it, it's starting to connect for me more. You know, I think that when I, when I first read this, uh, huh, what was literally my entire, huh? You know, that's, that was my, <laughs> my whole outlook was I was getting confused and getting caught up in my own understanding of the English words, shepherd and gate and doorway and thief. You know, I was getting so hung up on that. Um, but as I, I chew more and more on just the idea of um, the, the dichotomy, it's not a destination. Jesus' gate, being a gate, isn't being a gatekeeper and restricting access. It's this recognition that uh, to be under the, under the authority of the shepherd means that you go through the way that the shepherd leads. Um, and it makes me just think more on just my life of how I've often uh, tried to live my life for Jesus, but apart from Jesus. I've tried to do it on my own. Well, let me push you further, because, again, going back to Ezekiel 34, the critique there, and this is kind of, again, it can get a little confusing. God is our ultimate shepherd. That's the metaphor in Scripture. But we who follow God are called to be shepherds, called to be shepherds like Jesus. Yeah. Okay, so follow this. If Jesus is the gateway, the way of freedom, not the gatekeeper, and if the freedom, the way of Jesus comes not from being self-serving and self-protective, which is the way, contrast to the religious leadership, being self-serving, self-protective, but the way of Jesus, the way of freedom being the gate is being self-giving, then what does it mean to you? What does it look like that, we're not, that we are not the gatekeepers then? Mm-hmm. We, like Jesus, are supposed to be the gateway mm-hmm. to the pr- protection and provision of others. Mm-hmm. Well, and if, if a wolf does come, that means the shepherd is the first one the wolf's going to encounter. In, in, in a dangerous way. <laughs> it, the, the shepherd is literally laying his life down across the threshold to be, to, to be in between the sheep and danger. Do you think that we're living into that? I feel like... I can't... I don't want to speak for other people who follow Jesus. I want to speak for me. When I have spent time trying to follow Jesus on my own, I very quickly get very proud of myself for how well I'm doing with my Bible reading plan or how often I pray. And then I look at others to see where I am on the leaderboard. How, how well am I doing compared to others? And it very quickly turns into judgment of, oh, well, that person says they follow Jesus, but they're not doing the things I'm doing. And then I quickly become a gatekeeper. I don't know if I would let them in rather than if my role and, and all of our role, you know, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. Jesus doesn't call certain people to do things that other people don't do in the family of God. We all have a role in the family of God. We all contribute to the family. We all contribute to the body. It's just in different unique ways, but we're all part of the body. Um, and so like believing that, well, that means that we all have the ability to, but also the responsibility to to care for each other. And if I'm standing to the side with my arms crossed going, I don't know if I'd let them in, I'm being a gatekeeper. Whereas if we're following Jesus' footsteps of being the gate, the gateway, the shepherd who lays across the threshold for protection, am I viewing other people who might be not living the same way or putting themselves in situations where they're more vulnerable to being pulled away by the world? Well, then I need to be caring for them, be like, how can I put myself between them in that danger? How can I get involved in that mess, not in a judgment, not in a I can fix you kind of way, in a, oh, let me protect you. Can I help? You know, and I, I, I don't do that that often. So let me ask you this. And what, I don't know if any of us do. 
and I, would, I think we all struggle with that. So it leads to my, why do, you, why do you think we struggle with that? When Jesus invites us, that we don't, I mean, gatekeeping is a, lot of, is a lot of work. It's a lot of pressure. And when Jesus offers us this gateway to freedom to say, look, it's, you don't, this, these are not things you have to worry about. You don't have to be about this. I mean, why do you think, going back to John, why do the Pharisees, a man is healed. You know, a man who was born blind is healed. And they miss that in the midst of they're just so militant that they cannot, Jesus has to be labeled as a sinner. They can't accept him. Why, why do you think we, why is it so hard? I think it's hard for us to accept grace. I think it's hard for us to actually relinquish control. Because if I, if the way to following Jesus is meaning that I grab it and then I try and do it myself and I'm telling you, hey, you better be doing this too, then I feel like I have some control. I feel like I'm a master of my own destiny in a little way. I feel like, well, I can, I can make decisions that will influence the trajectory of my life. But to truly receive grace means I have to actually let Jesus be in control. And that makes me feel a little helpless. And then it makes me wonder, do I actually trust Jesus? And, I mean, I know we'll go next week about the good shepherd. But do I actually trust that he's good? And, and I'm not so sure because I haven't seen that many good shepherds in the rest of the world. I haven't seen that many examples. I haven't seen myself truly be good in that way. And so it's hard for me to trust and relinquish control. I don't know if that's where you're trying to, you know, oh, no, I, take me. I, but I that's, that's as I reflect is, is it's really hard for me to receive grace because that means I have to trust fully. Um, I just think it's interesting. We tend to get, and this, speaking this personally, I mean, even out before I was a pastor, being in customer service, it's easier to give a critique than it is a compliment, if this makes any sense, or praise. We're, we're, it's so much easier for us to say, to create the list of what, what is not acceptable, who we don't want, who shouldn't be in, and it's so much harder for us to be open to, to what, when Jesus tries to open us up, we seem, that just seems to be hard. And I, I hear what you're saying, that you know, we're, we struggle with grace, but it's just interesting, the very thing that we want the most, it seems to be the struggle, thing we struggle with actually receiving. And, and I think about this from a gatekeeper standpoint. I said that was one of my least favorite words, but <laughs> your perspective on a gatekeeper all de depends upon where you find yourself. If you're on the inside, you want the gatekeeper to keep people out. But if you're on the outside, you're begging the gatekeeper to let you in. And the interesting thing is, is that most of us perceive ourselves as being in the opposite situation. We're on the inside and being like, well, you need, can't tolerate that. You can't allow that to be going on. Yep. But if all of a sudden we realized maybe we're not in the position that we think that we're in, our perspective would change. Well, and I think, too, I, so I think it's hard to receive grace. Mm. I think it's harder for other people to receive grace. Because if you get forgiven for something that I had to earn, I'll get, so uh, my brother is three and a half years younger than me, and we are four grades apart. So we were never in high school together. We were never in college together. And so I spent four years of high school working hard with my parents to earn privileges, you know, to move my bedtime back, you know, to move my, when I could come home from hanging out with friends. Any other oldest children in here had to do that? Okay, come on, right? And you know, right? I come back for my first Christmas in college to visit uh, for Christmas. And my brother, who is a freshman in high school, barely 14, says, okay, mom, I'll see you, you know, after dinner. 
And I was like, where's he going? It's like eight, you know? And, oh, he's going to go see a movie. And I was like, oh, what movie are you guys going to see? He's like, well, we're going to get, you know, some food and stuff first, and we're going to see the movie. The movie doesn't start till 11. And I just turned to my parents with an accusational face, being like, you're letting him stay out till when does the movie get over? My curfew was 11.30 as a senior, and I had to fight for that. And he just gets to walk in my hard work? Oh, that is hard to accept when someone else gets grace that you feel you had to earn. Because it also is an affront to my hard work. It's an affront to my effort. It's an affront to all the good things I've done, all the things I have earned, all the ways I've proved myself, all the control that I thought I had when someone else gets let in. Wait a second. Why are you being nice to them? And I think that's also because we don't realize how we have been in need of grace, how we have been in need of forgiveness when we start to wonder why are they getting the forgiveness that I didn't get. I, I earned my way in that way. What, it may be a little extreme given Jesus' language, but in light of your story that you shared, what struck me, and I, and I could have, share a similar story as an oldest as well, not that it's restricted to older, the oldest child, is that in many ways in that moment for your brother, you were trying to steal, kill, and destroy. Absolutely. His moment. Get back in your place. <laughs> On the outside, struggling for four years. He has it, right? No, absolutely. I was setting myself up as a gatekeeper for the life that, you know, yeah. yeah. And, and I think that's, I think that's, that's a, a, a simple example, but a powerful one of, of in what ways do we, we, we claim the grace, we need the grace, we say we need it, we claim it, we're saved by grace, and yet when do we forfeit that grace? When do we go from becoming sheep to becoming thieves and robbers when we're trying to steal, kill, and destroy the grace that God seeks to give to other people. It's, and what's, what that pushes is if it's grace for, for, for me, then it's got to be grace for you. Mm. It's got to be grace for all of us. If it's not grace for all of us, then it's grace for none of us. And I think that's what creates this, this dichotomy here. There, really, there is no in-between here. I mean, in one sense, there is an exclusivity, but the ex- exclusivity is in its inclusivity. Is Jesus is the gateway, but if you are not going to embrace him as the gateway, then you're on the outside looking in, but you're on the outside looking in because of your own, you know, because of your own uh, choice. You know, yeah. it's the only people who can't enter into the full life that Jesus extends are those who won't come through the gate. The only people who aren't invited, or the only people who don't, aren't, aren't inside or through the gateway are those who don't want it. And ironically, it's not the outsiders, and I'm just pointing out what we see in the Gospels. It's the people that Jesus encounters who are on the outside are not the ones who say, who try to gatekeep. <laughs> It's the people who are on the inside who profess they want to go through the gateway, but they spend the majority of their time guarding the entrance. Yeah. They're so busy on fixating on reducing access, controlling the flow, that they miss the opportunities, the abundance. You know, I wonder if you self-reflect on that story, where did you miss the opportunity <clears throat> to be a part of what your parents were experiencing, what your brother was experiencing, but the predominance was to say, well, if, he, if I couldn't have this, then he can't have it either. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 was, I was caught up in my own uh, bitterness. I, you know, I, I relegated myself to a, an attitude of bitterness in that evening. Mm. It didn't hurt my brother. He still went out, had fun with his friends, watched a movie, 
came home at, you know, God knows when. Uh, <laughs> I think it was like midnight, but you know. Do you want to, I, I, I could wrap up, but is there anything else that you want to add? Yeah, this is a little bit of a, a tangent, but I, it, it, I think it connects. Um, another, another story about being a first child. Um, <laughs> Drew, tell me everything. Tell, mm. Can I lay down? Is that like, yeah. um, no, uh, so apparently, uh, I, don't, I don't know what my first word was. I, I can't remember that part of the story of my parents telling me, but I do know what my first phrase was um, because my, my mom has told me many times. My first phrase was, I do it. I do it. And this was with putting on clothes. This was with you know, feeding with the spoon. This was with anything. And, you know, Pastor Chris has a face right now because he knows me well, and he goes, oh, that makes so much sense. <laughs> that explains so much. But, but your it, wife is shaking her head back uh, there. Just I know, so you know she, she knows. <laughs> but my first phrase was, I do it, right? And, and so, and maybe this is, maybe you can relate with this, but maybe you can just relate through my story. But, like, I, I've approached life that way, where if you show me something, um, I'm not content uh, doing it with someone or under someone. I, I want to do it myself. I want to dive in. I want to jump in. I want to try it myself. I want to tinker with it. I do it. But I've also approached that in my adult life of saying, oh, that's how we're supposed to do it? Okay, cool, thanks. I do it. And then I go off. You know, oh, Jesus says, hey, here's what I want you to do with your life. Okay, cool, I do it. And then a year later I go, wait, where are you, Jesus? He's like, um, hello, the path's over here. Come on back. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 great, great. Okay, so what am I supposed to do now? So the first step is, great, I do it. And it's like, there's more steps after the first step, Drew. Where are you going? You know, and this has been a recurring theme in my life of I do it. And so I reflect on that with, with growing up in my, in my family, you know. And, and as, as, as a parent, you want your kids to be able to be independent and do things on their own. Um, and so the way I was approaching family was, oh, you're teaching me to do things, and I will learn how to do those things, and I will become more independent. And if I had just continued that way of life all the way, then as soon as I didn't need my parents anymore, they're in the back, you know, rearview mirror, and I'm onward and upward. I'm done with you. I've learned all I can from you. But the truth is, now I just get to sit with my family and, and enjoy relationship with them. Sure, the teaching of the, the tasks or the skills was an early part of being in that family, but it was for the sake of being an independent member of the family in relationship with my parents. Now, I can just sit with my mom and we can just chat. Before my dad passed, we could just sit together and talk about things. He wasn't teaching me things anymore. We got to just be in relationship together. And I wonder if I'm still struggling to figure out how to do that with Jesus. I wonder, for me, I'm still trying to view Jesus as the, the, the instructor who is showing me how to get to the destination, and is, I still view him as the gatekeeper, and so I do it until I can figure it out to show up to prove my way to get into the gate, whereas the whole point that Jesus is saying is saying, just be with me. Go with me. Come in and go out through me experience this salvation way of life, this restoration way of life, this abundant life, as it says in verse 10 of our passage, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give life to the full. 
And it's not this destination. It's ongoing journey. Come be with me. Stop just going, I do it, and go off by yourself. Because, sure, you can do that, but now you're over there. This is where life is. With Jesus. With our shepherd. Hearing his voice in community with the sheep. Leading and guiding others to join the fold. Not because they have to earn their way in, but because we all get to be under the protection of our shepherd. I resonate with that. The, the one, th- one thing that you said, though, that I think it can be the seed, of tr- seed that leads to trouble is in the analogy that you gave, and I think it's a c- common one we have, is this idea of learning the lessons with our parents and then just getting to be with them. I think that's where the analogy breaks down because when we get to this place of where, well, I, I, I'm, J- Jesus is always teaching us. Oh. There is no sense of independence. There is, it's, it's a both and, it's not an either or. I think that at times we approach it, like you said, from I have to learn these things and prove my worth and then I get to, I'm, I'm at this, and this is where we get, I'm at this higher spiritual plane where I think it's the reality of we're utterly dependent upon Christ and we're going to continue to learn from him. But the learning is not to prove ourselves. The learning is an opportunity to continue to grow into the fullness and the maturity of the oh, life. Oh, see, that just shows my arrogance as a firstborn that, you know, I've stopped learning, you know. <laughs> as, if, as if I don't still have things to learn from my family. And any of you that have raised kids... You know, especially if you've raised kids into adulthood, you know they come back around and they go, so, um, doing my own taxes, you know, or they come back, they go, all right, what does it mean when my kid does this? And those are the questions I ask my mom now. You know, I'll go, mom, can you describe what I was like at three? Because Emerson is now demonstrating some things that I don't know where she gets it from. And then I found out she gets it from me. Uh, I just didn't know that. Um, and... And any, any of us who are here who maybe haven't started raising kids, you know, who are in high school or in college or, you know, in their, in their young adulthood still, when you connect with your parents again, you know, sometimes you're like, yeah, I got this. And sometimes you come back and go, Dad, um, my car's making a funny noise, right? Because there's only so much you can learn on YouTube or TikTok, okay? Like, even though I, I love those videos, it's like, Here's something I didn't know until I was in my 30s, you know? And I don't know if you guys have seen that guy where he's, like, doing all these things that you didn't know exist. Like, oh, here's how to, you can use a whisk to pick up flour, and it doesn't spill everywhere, you know? And all the moms and grandmas are like, uh, yeah, you know? But we're always learning things. And, and, and if we recognize that it's not a destination to get to, salvation, this kingdom of God life isn't a place to go and then stop, but it's a way of life to continue on the journey together, well, then we get to keep learning together. Then we get to keep experiencing together. Then when I fall, I don't have to pick myself up, brush my knees, and see if anyone saw. I get to be like, ow, help, okay, thanks. You know? You get to be on that hike together. You get to be on the journey with the shepherd who is the gateway into a life of abundance. It's a good place to end, other than to say that is in recognizing that ourselves is to continue to recognize that as we have the freedom to continue to learn and to grow, that Jesus gives us that, that we don't have to prove ourselves, that maybe that reframes at times how we, in, how we engage other people on the journey. That another way to say if it's, not, it's, if it's grace for none, if it's not grace for everybody, it's grace for nobody. If, if I get the freedom from Christ to learn and grow on the journey, then others get to too. And so maybe we have a little bit more grace a little bit more mercy when we recognize 
that they may be learning things that we feel like we've already learned, or maybe <laughs> the things that they're learning we need to learn as well. Because uh, it just what what just I leave you with is when we talk about this idea of doors and gates. It's so important we all walk away to recognize that what Jesus is presenting here again is that anyone can come and use, can come to him as the gateway. In fact, in Luke's gospel, Jesus makes a very telling statement you might remember about doors and gates. He says this, knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. In Jesus' world, doors and gates are entrances. They open easily. Doors aren't there to keep people out For everyone who seeks life through Jesus, the door opens. For those who come through the gate, there is no barrier. And my favorite image of all is you go to the very end of our story in the book of Revelation, and there are tons of visions of doors and gates in heaven in the book of Revelation. But go and read carefully. None of them are locked. Not one. Most of them stand wide open at all times. And that's the reality. The doors of the gate of Christ are wide open. The arms of Jesus are wide open. And the invitation to come and see what's on the other side of that gate, to come discover what's found by him, that life is the invitation that we have and the invitation that we get to share. Thanks for talking, Drew. Let's pray. Well, (laughs) let's pray. Lord, you are our gateway to full, abundant life, a journey of healing, insight, and transformation that's beyond our imagining. We ask you to keep teaching us to hear and follow your voice alone as we move forward each and every day. We thank you for being our place of refuge and security, the one who always leads us home into the comfort and wisdom of your abiding presence. You were willing to give your life for ours to defeat all that stands against us, and your resurrection makes it clear that nothing, not even death itself, can separate us from your love and care. We thank you that the fullness of life you offer to us is not confined to the boundaries of the sheep pen, but that you lead us out into the world, providing for us, giving us what we need every step of the way. Spur us on then, O Lord, not just to take and consume what you provide, but to share the resources you offer to us, the lessons you teach us with each other, recognizing we are all your children, all a part of your flock. Together, may your peace go with us wherever you may send us. May you guide us through the wilderness, protect us through the storm. May you bring us home rejoicing at the wonders you have shown us. May you bring us home rejoicing once again into your arms. This we ask in God's name and all God's people said. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.